It feels like President Biden and his party have sent us back in time. And we're going to have a situation like we did in the 1970s. Let's consider the possibility that the 2020s could actually be worse than the 1970s. The 1970s was the decade of strikes, recession, oil crises, stagflation, crumbling cities, and rising crime. Even as those years recede from living memory, they linger in the discourse as a cautionary tale. The experience of the 1970s is used to justify tough-on-crime policies. It's also used as a cudgel against labor. If workers demand too much, we'll be back to the 70s. These warnings have been circulating for a long time. But since Joe Biden took office in 2021, fear of the 1970s has peaked. Economists and pundits now insist we're already replaying the 70s, with inflation, a fuel crisis in Europe, and war. Today on the show, we're talking about why people are so afraid of the 1970s, and whether we're really headed back there. I'm Laura Marsh. And I'm Alex Perrine. This is The Politics of Everything. Would you like to hear more from TNR? Every day, our writers and editors work to bring you the reporting and analysis you need to make sense of the world. But we can't do it without you. Please consider subscribing to The New Republic with our special offer at tnr.com slash special offer. That's tnr.com slash special offer. It seems like everyone on television and newspapers is warning these days that the U.S. is on the brink of returning to the 1970s. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has said the 1970s were the decade to which nobody wants to return. Gerald Baker, former editor of the Wall Street Journal, said in the 1970s, American cities became hellscapes. One economist called the decade a horror movie. On the right, the left, and the center, there's a palpable anxiety that the troubles of that era are descending again. We're speaking now with Aaron Timms, who recently wrote an article for The New Republic about this fear of the 1970s. Aaron, thanks for coming on the show. Well, thank you for having me. So what what was so bad in this view, in this telling? What was so bad about the 1970s? What are these people warning that we're returning to? Well, I guess I guess the most immediate source of the analogy is, is inflation. Mm-hmm. So inflation reached double digits in the middle of the 1970s and was this kind of persistent problem throughout the 1970s. And it was driven by factors that feel familiar to the situation that we're in today. There was an energy shock. There was a food crisis. When I talk about inflation today, of course, we're in the position where supply shocks have caused consumer goods prices to increase. So that's sort of, I think, the basis for this analogy. But thinking sort of more broadly about what was so scary about the 1970s, yes, inflation was this big intractable problem. But I think a lot of these references to the 1970s are driven by a fear of lawlessness, especially in cities. The caricature, if you like, of the 1970s is as the decade of mean streets and taxi driver and the French connection, sort of very dark, gritty time when there was a lot of crime in the inner cities. White people especially were fleeing to the suburbs. It seems like people who are speaking about the return of the 70s in these sort of apocalyptic terms, they're not just making an economic argument about inflation and interest rates. There is a sort of moralistic part of it that I think you touched on. Right, right. There is absolutely this sort of moralistic argument. You had this culture of permissiveness and freedom that came out of the 1960s, so people felt emboldened to press their claims on the state. 
which sort of led to a rise in activism, let's say, very generally speaking. You combine that with kind of these problems with, with law and order, with urban insecurity. I think it just feels like the kind of decade where the economy was spiralling out of control, law and order was spiralling out of control, and people were becoming, generally speaking, too entitled. And that's really what we need to be scared of. When you hear people saying we can't go back to the 1970s, is that coming from the right or the centre? Like how widespread are these warnings? So I think it actually cuts across political lines. You get a lot of, you know, Trumpist figures, let's say, like Peter Navarro and Larry Kudlow warning about a return to the 1970s. But then you get sort of slightly more respectable conservatives, let's say, like Neil Ferguson. I'm not sure that he quite fits that description. (laughs) And then you have figures who are very much part of the Democratic establishment, like Larry Summers Mm -hmm. is someone who's warning pretty much every day now about a return to the 1970s. So it is fairly widespread and shared across partisan lines and across the professions as well. So before we get into talking about how some of those ways of thinking about the 70s might be wrong, I want to talk about the fear itself, because in the piece you coin a term, nostophobia, Mm. fear of the past. (laughs) Just talk us through that term, how you came up with it, what you're thinking about it. Well, I just took the word nostalgia and turned it on its head. And I think this is sort of quite an interesting concept, I say, as as the person who wrote the piece. But those of us who weren't alive in the 1970s or have no living memory of inflation, when we think about sort of the past or the post-war past, let's say, uh, I I sort of consider that it's been idealised more in nostalgic terms. We think of Mm -hmm. nostalgia for the immediate post-war era. Even today, there's some residual nostalgia for the 1990s, even though it's kind of in many respects, a decade that reflects a lot of the problems that we live with today. This is the first instance that I can think of, certainly in my lifetime, let's say sort of over the last 40 years, let's say since the 1970s, where the past, sort of a a period of the past from the post-war era is held up as a source of anxiety, as a source of fear. Mm. So instead of nostalgia, which is sort of a, a longing for a return to the past, it's more in the nature of nostophobia. It's a, it's a fear of return. And yeah, I think it's sort of risen to the level where it describes a general syndrome and not just something that attaches to one or two discrete personalities. Mm-hmm. So nostophobia is the fear of the past. And then you have this nice phrase in the piece, 70s syndrome, which seems to be the dominant strain of nostophobia. Like that's that's the thing that we're really scared of, specifically in the past. Right, exactly. What I find really interesting about this is the hold that it has on a lot of members of the media and the political class. Obviously, it's increased in the last two years or so, but there have been inflation hawks warning about this for my entire adult life Mm. in the face of consistently deflationary, like actual, like the actual economy was consistently deflationary over that time. But I found it fascinating that the hold that it had as the 70s themselves retreated further into the background and as Mm. fewer and fewer living people had any memory of what the 70s were actually like to live through. Do you think that as fewer people remember them, does that make it like sort of stronger or weaker in its like mythic hold on people? I think it's sort of, it's at the sweet spot right now where it's at the absolute peak of its strength because you have enough people who have a living memory of the 1970s and they're sort of relatively senior figures now in politics and media and, and business and so forth. But then you have enough people who who don't have any memory of the 70s. So you can kind of call on the expertise as, as someone who lived through the 70s, you can present yourself as a 70s expert <laughs> and your expertise is beyond reproach or beyond question. 
It kind of occupies this sweet spot of, of being, I think the median age of the US population today is about 39. Mm. So it's at the point where there's this, this almost perfect balance between people who remember the 70s and those who weren't around for them. After the break, we'll be back to talk about how this fear of the 1970s is being put to use. What do the Nostrophobes want us to do to avoid a return to that era? We're speaking with the writer Aaron Timms about a condition he's identified among politicians and commentators, 70s syndrome, or the fear of the 1970s. Aaron, let's talk about the uses of this fear because it's being invoked to justify policy choices right now. When, for instance, Larry Summers warns about going back to the 1970s, what kind of things is he recommending that we do today? Yeah, well, he's, he's been very explicit about it. He said we need unemployment. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the way to get unemployment is through interest rate hikes. So it's basically a plea for a return to the years of the Volcker shock. So Paul Volcker, of course, the chair of the Federal Reserve from 1979 onwards, instituted this very punishing regime of interest rate hikes to get on top of inflation. So it's, it's really an argument for going back to, to that and doing exactly what was done in the early 1980s when interest rates got up to 20% to break the back of inflation. And what you get from that, of course, is you disincentivize businesses to invest as a result that the businesses don't do as well and they have to start laying people off. So you end up with, with unemployment. But I mean, it's, it's kind of remarkable how the solution that is proposed is not simply, well, we need interest rates hikes, it's we need unemployment. We must discipline workers. We must make them take the medicine of unemployment so that we can get on top of inflation. Yeah, I mean, the Volcker shock, I assume probably a lot more people, I'm talking about people who weren't there for it, people my age. I assume right. a, lot more, a lot more of us know about it now than maybe did a few years ago. But it's fascinating that it's presented still as, again, a morality story in which essentially the bad, bad workers asking for too much were punished. Volcker, in Reagan's first term, induced a recession, yes. an actual recession, crashed the economy. And then after that, I mean, you can tell us the rest of it, but stock markets began soaring a little bit after that. But the jobs didn't come back. And yet that's presented as not just a success, but like one of the central policy successes of the era. Yes, yes. Absolutely. It's kind of this holy grail or this thing that you cannot question. You know, the, the Volcker shock is something that finally broke the back of inflation. And I think I think we do need to recognise that inflation was this really damaging and intractable phenomenon through, throughout the 1970s. But it's bizarre to me that the conversation today is still very much centred on what the Fed and the Fed alone can do to get on top of inflation, whereas... There are many economists, especially those on the left, who are calling for a much more sort of sophisticated and targeted understanding of this very complex phenomenon of inflation and who recommend other actors, especially state actors, to take on the responsibility for, for taming inflation. But that, that's sort of the nuance of that conversation is completely lost and it's the object lesson of the Volcker shock is still held up as the template for what to do in this situation. It's puzzling because there's this fear of the 70s, but then the kind of conventional wisdom seems to be that the only way to fight this similar set of problems is by using the very painful solutions that were implemented in the 1970s, which I think in the memory of people who were alive then, if you had 
family members who were out of work, if you experience the effects of living in a recession, are also really painful and scary and not something you want to go back to. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah, I don't actually even really know how to make sense of it. If it's just sort of a, a, t- a taste, a taste for cruelty or something that's that's involved in recommending this, especially when, as I say, there are other solutions that, while they may not have the historical track record of the Volcker shock, are available to us that involve targeting inflation at its source and figuring out sort of mechanisms through fiscal policy to address inflation. You also trace a couple of other shifts that took place in the 1970s as a response to its various crises, such as shift from industry to finance, production to consumption, welfare state to real estate, the weakening of labor power particularly. How do you see those things being replayed now? Well, I think the most interesting one, the one that's most relevant to today's inflationary situation, let's say, is worker power. Right. It seems like this fear of rising labor power is is based on the so-called wage price spiral, which is a process where as goods become more expensive, workers collectively bargain for wage increases, forcing businesses to raise prices, leading to higher wages, and so on and so on and so on. Absolutely. When people invoke the ghost of the wage price spiral today, I think what's missing from that conversation is the fact that labour is nowhere near as organised. There's nowhere near the level of collective bargaining. There isn't anywhere near the level of collective action. So there is this very interesting parallel and distinction between the inflation of the 70s and the inflation of today in that today we've just come out of a pandemic where a lot of people were put out of work. And suddenly we have this very, very tight labour market where people are coming back into the workforce and there is this huge demand for labour. And that gives workers a kind of power, but it's actually not the same kind of power that workers had in the 1970s. Mm. What we have today is strong workers, but they're totally atomized, and, and mm. the strength of workers is totally located in the individual worker as opposed to being something that's dispersed over a collective. So that's, I think, a really important distinction. And this goes beyond labor. The other thing I think that's that's interesting in terms of this shift from the 1970s to the 1980s, if you like, or sort of the mm. post-1970s era, is to think about the role of finance, this shift of industry to finance, the deregulation of capital that took place after the 1970s is, of course, the status quo that we live with Mm -hmm. today. And there's so much fealty, I think, to the market and so much fealty to how the market reacts to different sort of economic policies that sort of baked into how political actors think of themselves. And I think that is quite sort of destabilising. And that, again, is sort of a, a legacy, if you like, of the 1970s. And it means that, you know, we end up with the situation we're in today where we have this problem Instead of understanding it as a problem to be resolved through politics, it's conceptualised as a problem to be resolved either by the Fed on its own or by the markets. And part of the argument of my piece is that this shift of trying to understand things collectively or trying to understand things through politics to simply giving up on political contestation and letting the market decide how to distribute resources is very much a product of the solutions that were developed through the 1970s to these problems of inflation and scarcity. It's what I find really interesting. And, and I think you sort of make the case that the 70s never went away because you're, you're talking about the wage price spiral and things like that. And as you say, it's 
was treated as gospel by economists for years and years, but it was based on that historic period where labor had enough power to demand wage increases in line with inflation, not just to demand it in the sense of a tight job market, but through collective bargaining, through like actual contracts that said wages will rise with inflation. I mean, how many people do you know who have contracts that say that now? <laughs> so it seems it seems absurd to cling to that as a law of economics and not as this sort of thing that happened at the time, the late 70s and early 80s. Deregulation and interest rate hikes and financialization. So, as you say, it transformed the, or the entire American economy, hmm. which makes it seem all the more absurd to me that the argument would be we should just do that again hmm. because exactly. we, we did it. Right. That happened. There's not a powerful labor movement to crush again because it's done. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Exactly. And it's it's this weird sort of mania for stability. I think that is that is really popular throughout policy circles and throughout sort of financial circles, let's say, the idea that, that the worst thing that can happen is that we can destabilise the status quo. I would argue the opposite. The best thing that could happen is if, if, if we do that, <laughs> you know, because the status quo is, is, not, is not working for so many people. But when people invoke this fear of the 1970s, what they're really asking for is a return to the solutions that emerged out of the 1970s. It's for more of the same, basically. Mm -hmm. So stripping back more entitlements, the few things that remain, raising interest rates, doing more austerity. Right. Yes. Yes, exactly. And, you know, fueling the further financialization of the economy mm -hmm. and increasing or at least preserving the distance between voters and the elites, if you like, the, the political elites, the business elites, entrenching this, what, what I call sort of the, the de-democratisation of monetary and economic decision-making. One of the legacies of the 1970s, of course, is that we have a very technocratic mode of economic governance and e economics is seen as this sort of priestly preserve of experts and the kind of thing that we, you know, ordinary people cannot question. Whereas in the 1970s, you had a lot of attempts, a lot of sort of avenues towards political experimentation, if you like, whereby economic decision-making would not be simply the preserve of elites, but would be more fully integrated with the democratic process. I think that's a really important point. We speak of economic policy, the Volcker shock. We speak of that period as inevitable, basically. Like that was the only way forward. But it wasn't understood that way at the time. There were paths not taken. What was the debate actually like at the time? Well, it was messy, I think is the best way to describe it. You know, it had sort of Keynesian economists who were representatives of the orthodoxy at the time, if you like, sort of the post-war economic orthodoxy, who were grappling with this problem and trying to find a solution through Keynesian demand management. Then you had this kind of resurgent vanguard of the business establishment and kind of business elites and the resurgence of kind of free market thinking throughout that decade. And, and of course, it predates the 1970s, but it's in the 1970s that a lot of this thinking came to the fore. So you see the formation of think tanks like the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, mm -hmm. the Manhattan Institute, places like that. So you have sort of these this sort of organisation on the conservative or, or sort of the pro-business side of politics to push pro-market policies to, to the forefront and to make them sort of the fallback position of politics, which is what we live with today. But that shift in political economy was not totally one-sided. There was a debate. There was a, a fight over it. Yes, exactly. I think there was a lot of back and forth between the different factions, the different sides of politics about what the best response to inflation should be. So on the left, you had a few things going on. You had kind of 
grassroots organizations. So you had sort of civic associations, block associations, workers' cooperatives, homesteading, these sort of local initiatives that were designed to address the problems of inflation and the end of growth. And then at kind of a macro level, you had a lot of debate on the left, especially sort of during the Carter administration, about introducing things like incomes policies, which would sort of cap wages, but then involve some bargain between wage restraint and workplace representation. There was also an experiment with price controls, which I think is really relevant to the current context because we're now going through this debate among economists about whether price controls are good or not and whether they might offer a solution to inflation that sort of gets around the problem of uh, inducing a recession through interest rate hikes. So there was this very sort of fertile and interesting discussion that was taking place about solutions to the crisis. What there wasn't so much, which I think is interesting to reflect on, is much of an attempt to democratise this conversation and to bring the body politic, the, the voting population, into the conversation about how you deal with the distribution of resources mm. under conditions of scarcity and the end of growth, which is basically what the 1970s was all about. Why do you think we've ended up with this narrative then that the 70s were this period where everything kind of came to a head and things were nice, but it went too far and you have to kind of crack down and discipline you know, workers and you can't always have an ample welfare state. Why has that been so successful? Do you think it's cultural? Do you think it's because of the way the 70s have been portrayed in movies? Is it because the neoliberals won? Like, what is the staying power of this vision of the 1970s? Because also in the piece, you say that this has distorted the legacy of the 70s. Like, it was also the era of the founding of the EPA and lots mm. of good things. I mean, one of the reasons Alex and I were so interested in doing this episode was because... For the last three years, pretty frequently when we discuss an issue on this show and we're like, let's go into the history of this mm. and like see when this bad thing started happening. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> it's always like, oh, 1978. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it often seems like this is the last moment that things were kind of good. Right. Yeah, it's, it's I, I guess it's because it's, because it's complex. I think that's why the caricature of the 70s is so powerful, because the 70s themselves were this very complex beast where things were good in some ways, but they were also very bad in others. And when dealing with complexity, I think people just reach for the simplest explanation. And in this case, it's that the 70s were really bad. But I think you're right to point to... Um, I mean, it's, I, I don't want to kind of do a bad version of cultural studies here, but it's kind of like, <laughs> I, I do think that that cinema has played a pretty important role in prolonging this notion of the 70s as this irredeemably horrible decade. I mean, this is, like I said, the decade of, you know, Taxi Driver and Mean Streets and, mm -hmm. and films like that, but it's also the emergence of the horror genre. I mean, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre came out in 1974, and it's all about how a family that's put out of work by economic rationalisation has to start eating humans to feed itself. <laughs> it's very explicitly about the economic crisis of the 1970s. So, yeah, I, th I think it's that, but I think it's also the legacy of this culture of deference to technocrats that we've internalised over the last 40 years, let's say, whereby the arbiter of what is good in policy terms, what constitutes a good policy, is the market. And whatever the market says is correct. So the moment the market reacts adversely to something, uh, we must correct course and, mm. and do things that will please the market. It's a combination of all the things that you said is what I meant to say. I like the idea that you could 
draw a line between the end of the Hayes Code and Hollywood censorship to like directly to stagflation and the Volker shock. Yes. All of a sudden people, people went to the movies and they were like, it's that bad. We didn't know we weren't allowed to see this before, but they're eating people in Texas. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. <laughs> We've got to do something. <laughs> yes, I agree. <laughs> All right, Aaron, uh, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You can read Aaron Timms's article, The Unquiet Ghost of the 1970s in the November issue of the New Republic. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Myron Kaplan is our audio editor. If you enjoy The Politics of Everything and you want to support us, one thing you can do is go to wherever you listen to the podcast and rate the show. Every rating and review helps. Thanks for listening. <laughs>